When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 239. Today's episode is all about how to do hard things. When we think about control, we often think, oh, I need to be able to control the entire thing. Like it needs to be all on me. And that's not the case. The science, the research, the experience all clearly shows that if you can find control in even the smallest of things, then that almost like opens you up and frees you up. And it's like your mind says, oh, like I can make an impact. I do have input on this. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If you're new to Mind Love, first, I am so glad you're here. And second, don't forget to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Giving your mind a little love isn't just a one-time thing, it's a way of life. Plus, more subscribers helps me attract more amazing guests and gives you more opportunities to change your life. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I'd love to share a review from M Goddess who says, I love Mind Love. Melissa has amazing guests who share their stories and practical advice for living a more mindful and heart-based life. I love Melissa's soothing voice. She has a knack for asking questions that take us deeper into fascinating topics. Time flies when you're in the Mind Love zone. Highly recommend it. Thank you so much for leaving this review. I didn't even realize Mind Love had a zone, but you know, now that you said it, I feel it. So thank you. And now let's get to the show. Want to know something that keeps crossing my mind? I think collectively, we're losing the ability to do hard things. Really though, look back at what our grandparents or great-grandparents just did on a regular day, and now compare that to what we do. And I know I sound like the old man who says, in my day, we walked 15 miles uphill both ways, barefoot in the snow. But as silly as it sounds, there's truth there. We will acclimate to anything, including extreme comfort. And I kind of think we have. It also works the other way around. If shit hits the fan, we acclimate to that too. People have survived some crazy conditions. And if you would have asked them if they were up for it beforehand, they likely would have said, absolutely not. How could anyone live through that? But it seems like the general rule is use it or lose it. The comfier life gets, the harder hard things seem. I was listening to a docu-series podcast the other day about a missionary scandal in Uganda. And some of the people that they interviewed are people living in a level of poverty that is so far from my experience that I can't really even comprehend it. As in coming up with $20 in a full year's time is impossible for them. The problems they face are survival-based. Food, shelter, infectious diseases— And then I'm over here subconsciously creating problems that aren't even real, just made up things that don't exist. And part of the reason for that is that humans are built for struggle. If we don't have real ones, we'll make some up. Our brains are wired for negative thinking. And they do this for our survival. We like to hone in on what might go wrong so that we're not caught off guard. But because our brains are wired for this, the more time that we spend in our heads, the more problems we feel like we have. And the cushier our lives become, the more time we can spend in our heads because we aren't farming the fields or milking the cows or carrying water. So of course our perceived problems seem bigger. And as a little disclaimer, I know that there are some of you listening who do have some big problems that other people can't comprehend. And other people who have what some people might look at as little problems and it feels big to you. So I'm not negating any of that. And wherever you are, I'm sending you love. But it is interesting to look back at the evolution of society. The way we viewed toughness decades ago is now considered toxic or emotional bypassing. 
but I'm not sure that this new way is working well for us either. It's so easy to argue something that's just a concept. It reminds me of the book Punished by Rewards, which I read last year after I had a baby, and how the idea that praise works better than punishment led to an entire generation of moms praising their kids for everything. And it makes a lot of sense. Suddenly kids are incentivized or rewarded for helping out, so they do more often. Until the kid moves out and no one's praising or rewarding anymore, so they have no motivation. And they don't know how to create it in themselves because the way they were raised ensured that all of their motivation was extrinsic rather than intrinsic. So maybe we need to wait to see how society turns out before we declare that we know the better way. Like, hey, we've implemented this in society. Everybody doing okay? Were there some repercussions that we didn't think of? Everyone's just sitting on electric recliners watching their 22nd hour of Netflix in a single day. Are they capable of anything else anymore? Because here's the thing. Struggle is a powerful catalyst for transformation. Some of the strongest, most fascinating and complex people in the world are people who have survived big, life-changing things. But does that mean that those of us on top of the privilege pyramid, which as much as we compare just in the United States, if you really think of the grand scheme of everyone on earth, is everyone with a roof over their head and food on the table. So are we all just doomed for dullness and apathy? I don't think so. But I think the key is to create our own struggle. But first, we have to remember how to be up for the challenge. We have to know how to sit in discomfort and willingly weather the storm. So that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Steve Magnus. He's a world-renowned expert on performance, well-being, and sustainable success. And his most recent work is Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. And he's also the co-author of the best-selling Peak Performance and the Passion Paradox. So three key things we will learn are what we got wrong about toughness that actually was toxic, how to create inner confidence, and four pillars of toughness that we need to step up and do hard things. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Steve Magnus to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So what inspired you to focus your latest work on the idea of toughness? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a long story. I think it really started with myself as an athlete and trying to figure out how to become tougher because as a runner, that's kind of what it's about. It's running is all about you being alone in your head by yourself with all these doubts and like feelings of insecurity just coming at you. And you have to figure out how to navigate and get on the other side of that. And then really it, it, it went from sport to life as I saw myself facing different challenges as I went into the workplace and adulthood and all, all those good things as we all did. And I figured there had to be a better way than some of the ideas that were um, being tossed around or that I was reading about. So I really wanted to explore that. I know that one of the first ideas that you bring out is that we got toughness wrong. How so? Yeah. So for the longest time, what we've held on to is this idea that it's almost like you put your head down, you ignore whatever you're feeling, and you just try and grit or bulldoze your way through. And whether we look at sport, we look at military, we look at even some evidence from teaching and parenting, is we often hold on to this model that toughness is about, again, ignoring things and just 
bulldozing through, um, gritting our teeth and, and getting through to the other side the best we can. And if you look at the science and psychology, and even if you talk to the world's best performers, that often backfires. So I'll give you the example from parenting because I think this is one of the most intriguing findings is that often young parents think, especially on the male side as, as you know, fathers, they think like, oh, the way to create a disciplined child is to be incredibly demanding, to set high expectations, to lay down the law and put the rules down. And what the research shows is that backfires if you do not do that without what is also called responsiveness or care or fulfilling the child's needs. So the parenting research is very clear that you need both a high level of, you know, what we'll call demandingness or expectation, but that doesn't work without this responsiveness or care or support that children need. And I think that such a clear example because it also translates into everything else we do from sport to work to leadership and that we often get stuck on the demanding this stuff, but that doesn't work unless we have this support, this fulfilling people's needs, et cetera, that is, that is vital. I am a semi-new parent as of about a year and a couple months ago. <laughs> and so those parenting examples really get me. And I, I know what you're talking about because I've reflected a lot on my own growing up, I guess, and and kind of seeing, trying to figure out like, okay, well, what are my issues now? Where did, when did these start? And there's the other side of that I, where, you know, you get, you're too soft or you um, reward them too much or say good job even too much can lead to them not having an intrinsic motivation and instead always be doing it for the praise. And so finding that balance of like, okay, how responsive do I need to be? How tough do I need to be is difficult. You have another example in your book, the sink or swim metaphor from military. And apparently we even got that one wrong. We did. So <laughs> first off, congrats on the parenting. A lot, Lots of respect there. My wife is a... Uh, elementary school teachers. So the best lessons I had on any of this is watching her manage a class during COVID. It was <laughs> oh crazy and amazing. Yeah. But in terms of the military, so what we stuck with is our popular conception of like developing this resilience or toughness often comes from what I'd say is the 1940s version of the military, where we think we see them do really difficult things and through some challenging challenging opportunities. And we think, oh, this is the, the, the key. We even mimic it often in society. We have like boot camps for, you know, fitness and discipline and teams and organizations. And we think this is the way. But what we got wrong here is that that's not the way that the military actually develops this mental toughness. That's just a selection method to say, hey, like, do you have kind of what it takes to start, you know, this process? Once you're actually in the military, what they do is they spend a lot of time teaching you the psychology of coping with difficult things and the skill sets to navigate them. Not by, again, just putting your head down and rushing through, but by using like modern psychology and, and sports psychology. The military is the, in the U.S., the largest employer of sports psychologists in the nation. And there's a good reason for that because they have to teach people how to keep their head on straight, how to keep their mind steady when chaos, uncertainty, et cetera, is going on you know, around them. So again, we kind of took the wrong lesson in the one place where we, we often hold on to this idea of toughness, which is the military, when if you look at how they're actually developing these skills, they're using modern science and psychology, not these old school kind of boot camp-esque ideas that we hold on to. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you teach the first pillar of toughness, we've kind of talked about it already, is acknowledging that something is hard to embrace that reality. But it's interesting because that's not necessarily the most intuitive way to go about it. It's like, I would think, okay, yeah, I'm running a marathon. I'm running 
rather than being like, yeah, this is really freaking hard. I would lean into the mindset of like, I can do this. You got this. So how do you balance that so that you're not just focusing on the fact that this is so hard and then getting in your head and talking yourself out of it? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now for another episode of lies we've been told about our health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. How do you balance that so that you're not just focusing on the fact that this is so hard and then getting in your head and talking yourself out of it? Yeah, it really is this kind of finding this sweet spot, right? And when I mean embrace reality, I mean just that. Reality is understanding the actual difficulty of it, not blowing it up in your head to be too big or too small. So to use that that marathon example, right? is if you go into the race and think, ah, oh, this is a piece of cake. I got this. I've done the training. You know, you got it. No problem. What happens when it inevitably becomes difficult is that reality smacks you in the face and you spiral out of control to freak out because your brain's sitting there going like, hey, you told me this was going to be a piece of the cake and you got this. Like, what in the world happened? You don't got this. So I'm going to take over and kind of shut you down. Now, on the opposite extreme, right, if you go in and you say, oh my gosh, this is going to be the most difficult thing in the world. I don't know if I can do this. This is going to be, you know, life or death to go through this. What happens is your brain says, oh my gosh, this is going to be incredibly difficult. We better go into a hyper protective state and we're going to be super cautious and tell you to keep slow, keep slow, keep slow. And because of that, you might not, you know, reach your capabilities or see what you're capable of in terms of your performance. So when we talk about embracing reality, it's about acknowledging the actual difficulty of it and then acknowledging what your capabilities are. 
So research clearly shows us is that it's when these two things have at least a decent overlap, which is your perception of the difficulty and your perception of your ability to handle whatever that event or whatever that thing is. And we want those to match up to a degree. So sometimes that means you're, you know, pulling yourself back in towards reality. Sometimes that means you're pushing your confidence up to where it actually should be based on, you know, what you're capable of. That makes a lot of sense because so often I know so many guests have brought up the point that our realities are way more subjective than we think they are. You know, somebody experiences something and it's like the best thing in the world and the other person experiences the exact same thing and it's absolutely terrible. Or some people look look at a challenge and and they're like that's a piece of cake, that's I got this. And other people look at the exact same challenge and they might even have the same skills and be like no, I could never do that. It was funny because I was reading a different book from a different guest and I was looking at the reviews on Amazon and this this book was only about like really understanding how to practice better if you're an elite athlete or, or wanting to learn anything, an instrument. And one of the one-star reviews, I, I get a kick out of one-star reviews, was just like, yeah, but the author doesn't talk about that. Not everyone has these capabilities. And I'm like looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, that is the fixed mindset at its finest. <laughs> this is like just how to practice to learn something and you're already shutting yourself down before you can even learn that. And so the idea for so many of these external challenges is to turn inward and say like, well, how can I look at this differently or look at myself differently in order to perceive this in a way where I feel capable? But then the question is, is how do we start to create that inner confidence so that we perceive these challenges a little bit differently? Yeah, you know, that's a great example. And I'm glad you can look at the one-star reviews. I try to avoid those, but... <laughs> Only other people's one-star reviews. <laughs> that's true. Maybe that, that, that's the key to training toughness. I'm going to start looking at my one-star reviews. But you make a great point, which is perception matters a whole heck of a lot. And we create that story in our head. And that story can be you know, completely different from someone who has a very similar experience. You even see this in how perception shifts our biology. There was a great study that showed that when you put people through something that is like very fearful, like if they're afraid of snakes or spiders and you put a spider right next to them, the area, the fear is in their brain will light up way more if they're there alone versus if their partner is just standing next to them, not saying anything and just holding their hand. And what is it, what does that change? It just changes our perception a little bit. Because if our partner is there, we feel a little bit more safe, a little bit more secure, right? They've done the same study or similar studies when looking at how difficult it is to, you know, sprint up a very, you know, large hill. If we have friends around us, we'll actually perceive and judge that hill to be shallower, not as steep, than if we're there alone. And I think the key around all of these things is our perceptions are malleable. We get to change them. And to me, developing this true inner confidence is kind of taking advantage of that. Understanding that, that this, a lot of this stuff isn't black and white and we can change how we perceive the difficulty in front of us. And with developing that inner confidence, the thing that I always like to say is that confidence needs evidence. And it's our job to kind of give our mind and our brain the evidence for why we are capable of handling this and have this like true inner self-confidence based on reality that we can handle whatever challenges in front of us. So much of perception I have found begins with a choice. Like you have to choose to do this work. You have to choose to be like, okay, I'm going to work on my toughness or I'm going to work on my forgiveness or whatever it is. It's that choice that you're going to figure out, even if you don't see right now, that you have the power to change or to change your life or to see things differently. The first step is choosing to do the work in order to find that way. I, I think that's such a, a important point because what happens if you don't? If you don't make that choice, then you shut down. 
you've essentially put up this wall and said, you know what, I'm going to live in this like defensive, like not open world where nothing gets in. If you choose to work on yourself, you choose to say, hey, I'm going to try and get better at this. What you're doing is you're opening yourself up to change and improvement. And you can see the same phenomenon occur in conversations, right? If you walk into a conversation and you say, hey, you know, Melissa might believe some different things from me, but she's really smart. I'm going to listen and see what I can take away from that. You're going to learn from that conversation. If you come into that conversation and you say, hey, no, I've got it all figured out. I don't know why I'm here. Even if you say some utterly brilliant things, my brain's not, I'm not going to process them. I'm not going to take hold of them. I'm on like defend and shut down mode. So I think it's so important when we look at regardless of what ability or technique or tactic we're trying to improve is coming in with this open mindset of, hey, I'm going to make the choice to get better. I'm going to make the choice to do the work. That almost like primes us to be open and absorbing in that kind of growth mindset or growth mode. And a lot of toughness, some of the examples that we gave already were like, you know, training for a marathon or or doing some big accomplishment of some sort. But a lot of the times that people need to develop toughness is just dealing with the ins and outs of like what happens in life and in the world or feeling out of control. And there was a quote in your book that said, when we don't have control, we lose the capacity to cope. It's when we have a choice that toughness is trained. And so what I gather from that is that it's almost this choosing to be tough is seeing your side in this. Like, yes, there's all these things out of my control, but I can choose how I'm responding to this. I can choose the areas of control or the sense of control. I can find the areas that I have a sense of control. How do you recommend that people develop more of that sense of control within themselves? Yeah, I think this is another one of those really important points, especially in today's society where we often are just put in a place where it feels like our life is spinning out of control and uncertain and everything's just happening to us and we are just caught reacting. And I think the key is when we think about control, we often think, oh, I need to be able to control the entire thing. Like it needs to be all on me. And that's not the case. The science, the research, the experience all clearly shows that if you can find control in even the smallest of things, then that almost like opens you up and frees you up and tells you, and it's like your mind says, oh, like I can make an impact. I do have input on this. So whenever I work with people on on this idea of control, I say, find control in the smallest thing that that is related to whatever it is you're, you're overcoming or whatever it is, you know, life is throwing at you. If... Your sense of control is simply, hey, I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to brush my teeth and make myself breakfast and go about my day. That sometimes is enough. If you look at, you know, going to the extreme, if you look at the data and research on Holocaust survivors during World War II, one of the things they often cited was having something in their life that it was them doing. So there were individuals who cited, you know, combing their hair, for example, or, you know, brushing their teeth or just very simple things in a world where everything else was outside of their control. Everything else was all their freedoms were kind of taken away going through that space. If they could find an inkling of something that, hey, every day I'm going to do this, you know, research showed that it helped them cope with the atrocities that they were going through. So I think about that story all the time in my own life is even if everything feels uncertain and uncontrollable around me, what are the things in my life that, you know, I can do? And, you know, one more example that I think might drive drive this home is that you see this often in sport. Regardless of the sport, it seems like, you know, every athlete has their little ritual before they, you know, walk up to the plate and bat in baseball or or get ready to serve in tennis, they go or shoot a free throw. They all have their ritual. Well, why do they do that? A large part of that is control. Because if you go through the same ritual before you shoot your free throw, 
you're taking a situation that is like, hey, yeah, it involves my skill, but there's a lot of luck and uncertainty around here. And you're saying, nope, every time before I shoot a free throw, I bounce the ball three times and then take my shot. That is giving your brain just a little bit of control amidst the chaos that often frees you up to perform. I find so much power in little rituals. Uh, For example, when you're talking, I was thinking just about my morning routine. I change my morning routine up. I'm I'm that kind of person. (laughs) I used to feel like a failure because I couldn't keep the same one. Now I'm like, ah, getting bored of this one, need to switch it up. But right now, the very first thing I do in the morning is meditate. So it's a lot easier to get out of bed at 5 a.m. when I'm like, okay, all I have to do is sit upright on a cushion and still have my eyes closed. (laughs) But it's interesting because sometimes if something gets in the way and I can't do that, I'm like, ah, I need to at least find another moment of just stillness to myself. And it's like, it's like I, it calibrates me. But I think one of the biggest things that it does is so often, whether we're stressed out about life, whether we're nervous about some sport that we're about to play or a run we're about to take, that worry and that anticipation or the fear or whatever is all in our head. And the moment that I get into my ritual, I'm back in my body, I'm doing, I'm engaging with the world. And so the mind has a little bit less power there because I'm back in my body in that present moment. And I know that that brings me to your second pillar of toughness is listening to your body. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. That brings me to your second pillar of toughness is listening to your body. How do you use that teaching in order to develop toughness? 
Yeah, I love that example you just gave because that's such a, a again, a, a, a very clear example of this, which is our body holds power, right? We often get stuck in our mind and let it take control, but our, our body is communicating with our mind all the time. And often it can direct us in, in different spaces. So when I say listen to your body, all those emotions, the feelings, all of that experience is information. And it's almost like if you can learn to speak that language and decipher it, you're in a much better position than if you just say, hey, I'm, an, I'm just going to ignore this, all of this barrage of feelings, emotions, thoughts, etc. And I think if you understand how the body works and how it communicates, it puts you in a better position to navigate these situations that often come with, again, all sorts of emotions, feelings, et cetera, than if, if you don't. So a large part of this is, you know, like in your meditative practice, what do you do during meditation is you literally just sit there and sit with whatever you're feeling, whatever emotions pop up, whatever thoughts pop up, and you're just either coming back to the breath or letting those emotions, feelings, et cetera, kind of float away. And what you're doing there is kind of like tapping into, hey, I know these are, this is all going on in my body. And I can either like learn to like navigate it, understand it, or, you know, I can fight it. And it's much better to understand and navigate than fight it. Yeah, that was such a big learning lesson for me because I spent so many years thinking that toughness was turning that off. Like, nope, that's not going to affect me. And I went through a pretty hard time in my late teens and early 20s, like sexual assault, losing my dad, losing a good friend to suicide. And so I really remember people asking me, like, how are you doing? That's a lot to go through in such a short period of time. And saying like, no, I don't understand why people let these things affect them. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And silly me, all I was actually doing was delaying the healing and the feeling, <laughs> you know, <laughs> until I was present enough to sit with it. And it's like, I went through the processing, the grieving, like 10 years after it happened. doesn't mean I didn't cry a bunch by myself, but it's like I wasn't allowing any of that to penetrate. I wasn't finding any lessons from it. It was just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm just an emotional wreck. And it did seem like the less time I was willing to consciously sit with those feelings, the more explosive and out of my control that they ended up being. It's like I would just break down over something small or I would, you know, lash out at somebody. And so those feelings, I found that I couldn't bury them. It's just I could either choose to be with them or they would choose when they would come out. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. I think that, again, I think you're spot on, is that what we know from, again, psychology is like, if we resist those feelings and emotions and try and bury them, all that does is it makes them, I'd say, come back for more. It's, they're more stronger. They grow in this power so much that eventually they kind of pop or blow up to the surface and, and are outside of our control. And that just is how things happen because if you don't process and understand things, Again, you're giving that power away. And to me, we talked about a little bit about this and control. Like control doesn't mean like, oh, I have forceful control over these things. But it's having that ability to have that choice of, okay, like I experienced this. Here is, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what the emotions are. Let me sit with these and understand these. That's control, right? That's saying, hey, we're going to figure this out. When we just try to push things away and ignore things, we give that away. And unfortunately, in our society is often we send that message that the, the quote unquote tough thing to do is to push and ignore. I mean, outside of, you know, everyday life, like that's certainly the message that I received in sport growing up. 
is that you you don't show any emotions. You don't have any of those experiences. You just push them away. That's also the message that, you know, growing up, I received about like mental health. How do you get through things? Oh, you just push push them away and ignore them. And like, you know, you don't need to cry or do any of those things, especially as a male in society. Like that was very adamant growing up. And I think that when we do that, when we send that message, we do ourselves a disservice because there's a reason we have emotions and feelings and all of those things. Like they're not just there haphazardly. Like there are our body and our brain's communication system. Well, if we continually try and push that communication down, of course it's going to come back for more. You teach that feelings are predictive and not reactive. What do you mean by that? So often what we think is that feelings come about because of something that like something that occurred. But what, again, most of the modern science and psychology shows is that we actually unleash our feelings like in anticipation of what we're going through. So it's almost like our brain says, hey, you're going through this very difficult thing. I'm going to like unleash these feelings to communicate this message and put you in this state. And I think that's an important distinction because... Again, if we think of our feelings as messengers, then it makes sense that they're predictive in nature because they're telling us what we're about to experience and what we're going to have to go through. The clearest example I could maybe give on this is think if you're out in the woods, you know, on the savanna or whatever have you thousands of years ago, the feeling is it goes off when you might see a a bear or lion or whatever have you, that feeling comes about that instant you see it because your brain is trying to say, hey, there's danger here and to take action, to do something about it. So in this case, they're like predicting like, hey, we need to take an action. And this is the action I think you should take, which depending on the feeling could be to fight, could be to run away, could be whatever. So I think in the same way in modern society is if we see those feelings as as messengers, then we get to learn, hey, do I listen to this message? Or is it one that maybe is a false alarm that I shouldn't listen to? When you gave that example, what came to mind for me was one of the ways I use my feelings as messengers is, you know, when I'm really triggered, <laughs> what I get, I've gotten really good at in the last few years or really since being married, I would say, is knowing when to step away and, and take a few moments for myself. You know, I feel all the fight or flight coming up. I can feel like my chest tight and like my tongue is just ready to like whip out whatever I feel like is going to be the, the the most intense response that's going to like drill in my point. And I'm like, no, when I get these feelings, I used to lean in and it was like when I'd go on like a monologue of a rant of some sort. <laughs> now it's my time to like step back and go take a moment for myself, which kind of brings me to your third pillar, which is about responding instead of reacting. And so I know for me, for those feelings that I that are coming up, if I stay there in the argument or whatever it is, I'm going to say something that I don't mean, or I'm going to not, I'm going to react from my lower self, as I like to call it. But just taking that moment away allows me to sort of take a deep breath and instead of reacting is to respond. But it's not as easy as it sounds like it's going to be. And so what are your tips for getting into that more responsiveness rather than the reactiveness? Yeah, I love that example because every couple has gone through this, right? It's the the (laughs) argument where you say something or you have this urge to say something that you know you should not say. But Oh my gosh, can I just tell you that I was the person that pe- my friends used to text message like, I need to come back with a really biting response. And I was, I'm like, I'm like so good at it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I, gotta, I gotta let that talent go. It's not a good one to have. <laughs> oh gosh, yes, yes. I think everybody can resonate with that, that experience and there's a reason for it. And I think what you're describing there is, is pretty simple is, is our tendency is toward, towards reacting. And reacting is when we just, we're in that moment, we feel those barrage of feelings, like that urge to say that thing or do that thing, and we just let it go. 
And we just say, okay, I'm going to say the like really biting comeback because this is what's best. But that might feel good for like an instant, but over the long haul, it just makes things way worse. It's not the wise decision, right? Responding is creating space so that you can recognize, even just for a second, it says, hey, I'm going down this path. I might not want to go down this path. And you can divert and like actively choose like, okay, this isn't the path that I want to go down. I'm going to stop this snowball rolling down this hill. And I think that's the key. So anything that you can do to create just a little bit of space in that moment, right? Understanding your technique and tactic of saying, hey, I now see those feelings as like a warning light to say, hey, I'm about to spiral out of control. I need space. I need to take a timeout. Like, that's fantastic. What I would say is anything in those moments where you can zoom back out and shift your attention will give you that little bit of space to be able to, again, navigate things. That can be anything from, again, as I said, changing your attention to changing like your inner dialogue and getting out of argumentative mode and getting back into like figuring out mode with your um, inner dialogue. It can be changing your environment as well. Again, tons of research on, on parenting and, and um, in relationship expertise that shows that even when we're in our arguments, like moving that argument somewhere else actually often gives you just enough space to, to kind of get out of that negative spiral and negative loop. So responding is about just simply doing whatever you can to create this just momentary space or perspective where you get out of that spiral and, and can get your kind of rational brain back online. I have thought of that exercise or just that idea as a way to kind of be more calm, not as reactive. I've not ever really associated it with toughness though. How does it go with just having that kind of mental strength? How does it go with just having that kind of mental strength? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, what I would say is this pretty simple is if you look at any situation that is, you know, you're going through for life's challenging, what is it but navigating this chaos that's going on? So you look at at sport, it's often playing through the pain. If you look at toughness in the workplace, it's making the hard decision that you might not want to, right? If you look at parenting, it's, you know, maybe doing the discipline when you might not want to at that point or like doing something for your child that you know is best over the long haul, but might cause something, you know, difficult in the short term. And when you look at toughness in every situ one of those situations, part of you is going to be pulled towards what I'd call the easy decision, which is often the reactive decision. Because your brain and body just want to get through this. It just wants to get to the other side. So it often says like, oh gosh, like I'm going to make this easy decision because like that gets me to the other side of this. That gets me out of this situation temporarily and gives me some relief. But what we're worried about in toughness is not the easy decision, but it's taking that wise action and getting to the decision that hopefully helps us over the long haul. So when we look at creating that responsiveness and not reactiveness, well, if you can respond or create that space, the chances of getting to that more productive, wise action go significantly up compared to when you're in that kind of like reactive state where you're just, you know, your other, your kind of like lower self brain is kicking in an online and your kind of rational self is just totally offline. So... When we talk about responding versus reacting, it's one thing to kind of take that space or say it's the toughness in like a marathon run or whatever. And it's like, okay, my mind is telling me to get out of this race, go get some water and like put up my feet, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to respond based on my bigger goal, whatever it is. But that doesn't mean that whatever we're going through isn't really uncomfortable, whether that's our body physically hurting from like running this marathon or we're like right in the middle of grief or 
or we have to make some really difficult decision. It's like, yeah, we're responding maybe from our higher self, maybe making the decision we want to make, but it's still uncomfortable. And I, that kind of brings me to your fourth pillar of transcending the discomfort. And you talk about building the foundation to do hard things. What is in that foundation? So often when we think about toughness or doing hard things, we think about like the individual stuff that we talked about, like these moments. But the reality is our environment and the space around us impacts so much whether we're going to choose to persist or like deal with that grief or uncomfortableness or uncertainty or not. And if you look at it, there's a couple key things that, that matter a lot. Is that when people feel like they have their basic psychological needs met, they are way tougher. What are those basic psychological needs? Pretty simply, it's when they feel like they have some sense of autonomy meaning they can have input and have a choice and all those wonderful things that we talked about. When they feel like they have competency, which is means that they have a path forward to grow, to develop, to make progress in whatever it is they're doing. And then also the third one is that they feel like they belong. And I think this is often the most important one is when we have a community around us or family around us or a workplace that that you know tells us that we're part of it and that we belong, then we can handle challenges to a much higher degree. When we feel like we belong, all sorts of research that shows that we will actually appraise like pain, discomfort, et cetera, is being less than if we don't, if we're isolated. So I think it's really important. We often think of these ideas of toughness or resilience on an individual level, but our community, our environment, our workplace, all of those things set us up to be able to handle difficulties and challenges, or they can work against us and, and thwart our ability. So I'm always you know, advocating for people to, hey, if you're going through a difficult moment or life's challenging times, like make sure your environment is set up up around you to support you, to uh, give you the security that you need to handle whatever it is you're going through. That's a good point. I am very affected by my environment. I also am just like, I've had a lot of different addictions in my life. And so I know the power of like, or I know what it takes to break bad habits down to like full-on addictions or eating disorders, things like that. And so one thing that comes to mind is my mom is all about like putting everything away and I'm okay with the clutter that supports my goals. <laughs> like I have my daily stoic book out because I want to read that every morning. I have my meditation cushion out always. I have a cup of water that I keep constantly full of water because I will drink more if I don't have to pour it every time. <laughs> and so that's how I use my environment to kind of support the things that I'm, I'm trying to train myself in, I guess you could say. And another thing that helps, and I know that you talk on this too, is finding meaning in that discomfort. And there was an example that came up recently. I was talking to somebody who had spent time in in solitary confinement, and they were uh, this person said it was like the worst time of his life, and had also recently just seen somebody that I is a fellow podcaster that had just come out of like a silent solitude retreat, and it just kind of got me thinking, like. Both of these people are in solitary confinement. Only one of them, the one that chose it, was also in complete darkness the entire time. Yet one of them came out and it was like the best experience of them, their life. And the other one came out and it was the worst experience of their life. And so I wonder how many more things there are where if we just shift the way that we look at it, suddenly it's more manageable. Yeah, I love that that example and that contrast because it's it's so true. Um, and of course, there's obvious differences there, but it's. I think there are a lot of things that if we found meaning out of the struggle or out of the suffering, that 
we'd be and we'd come out of it in a better place. And this isn't to make light of any of the suffering or any of the things. In fact, famed uh, Holocaust survivor and author Viktor Frankl writes about this all the time or wrote about this all the time, which is like part of his process through getting through what he did was to find some sort of meaning in this act that was placed upon him that most of us would say is just horrific and doesn't have any meaning behind it. But again, if you looked at his work, if you looked at others who went through similarly very difficult um, things, the making sense, the finding meaning in that adversity keeps popping up as being an important part of having what's called post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think meaning on itself is one of the most important things that you can do. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you just say, hey, something very difficult happened to me and, you know, I'm just going to try and turn it into a positive. No, that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to find meaning out of that experience that you went through, even if that experience is extremely negative. So this is one place where I think actually, you know, therapy is wonderful for because this is what is finding meaning, but processing your experience and making sense of it and coming out on the other side with like a renewed, maybe different lens to look back on it from. So I think it's vital. Well, I'd love to leave listeners with some activity or thought experiment to kind of focus on for the week that really drills down what we've been talking about. If you were to leave listeners with one thing to focus on this week that helps them develop their mental toughness, what would you give them? Oh, that's a good question. I love the practicality of this. How about this? Think of something that it, in your life that causes you to have anxiety or uncertainty or maybe a, a little bit of uncomfortableness. And for this next week, I just want you to lean in and embrace that and go towards it. Now, leaning in and embracing it, it could mean, you know, just sitting with it. It could mean doing something about it. It doesn't really matter. But I want you to practice going towards that instead of the natural tendency, which is to shy away and avoid it. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've brought to this conversation. And I know so many people, especially now, it just seems like there's one thing after another where we just need to develop, either need to develop that strength or, you know, we're going to have really cynical outlooks on life. So thank you for helping us all be a little bit tougher this week. And for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, where is the best place for them to connect? Yeah, you can find me on all social media at Steve Magnus or on my website, uh, stevemagnus.com. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 239. So you heard your challenge for this week is to find something that you are uncomfortable with and lean toward it. What I also love about this challenge is there are a lot of ways to do this. And so this can also be a practice of listening to your own internal guidance. Maybe just sit with the idea and ask yourself, what is one way that I can lean towards this? And when something comes to mind, do that. And you might even continue to ask yourself throughout the week, what is a deeper way I can lean towards this? Is there anything about this that I'm still avoiding? And can I step into that? We learn so much about ourselves by stepping outside of our comfort zones. I feel like I'm constantly toggling this line. It was a game changer when I found all of my little habits and routines and the structures around my life that make it more enjoyable for myself. I lived so long as just a free bird with none of that. And so now I'm like, yes, I have my morning routine. I have this routine. I have my midday routine. <laughs> it's just, I've got routines for just about anything. And they can be really helpful for getting in the groove of something, like a little routine for a podcast interview to get me in the right headspace. But the danger of that is that I create this little zone of comfort that can be hard to break. For example, one time I traveled and didn't have my fancy drink that I make, <laughs> which is like a DIY kind of mud water alternative. And I felt like I was going to lose it. My whole day was thrown off. <laughs> and so now one of the things I make sure to do is to break my little structures, make sure that I can still do it without it. And so 
leaning into something that's uncomfortable can be as easy as that. It can be doing something a little bit different each day. But if you really want to be intentional with this, pick something that you want to improve in your life. Envision the person that you want to be and then ask yourself what work you need to do to get there. And so if you're leaning into those areas of discomfort, the ones that really matter, the ones that are in the way of who you want to become, that's where you find your real motivation. And that's where you find your real potential. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right here on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash 239. If you'd like to support MindLove, you can do that by joining MindLove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. All of you who join are my favorite people on earth, right next to the people who leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So if you do that, I just might read your review on the show. And if you join MindLove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium, you will be in my heart forever. You can also find any of my amazing sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.